Well, two weeks ago, we began our study of Revelation chapter 20, verses 1 through 10, and the thousand years during which Satan is bound and the saints are raised to reign with Christ. At the end of the thousand years, Revelation 20 says that Satan will be released in order to deceive the nations and to gather them together for a war against the saints. At which time Satan and the wicked nations under his sway will be finally defeated and destroyed by fire that falls from heaven. And in the introduction to that message two weeks ago, I surveyed the three views of this passage that have dominated church history. Premillennialism, postmillennialism, and amillennialism. And then I began to make my case for the amillennial view, which says that the thousand years during which Satan is bound and the saints are raised to reign with Christ is in fact a symbolic figure representing the entirety of the present age between the first and the second comings of Christ. Now I assumed that the vast majority of you walked in two weeks ago predisposed to the premillennial view which you were taught, which says that at Christ's return, which is depicted for us in Revelation 19, 11-21, there will be followed a 1,000, literal 1,000 year period during which Satan is literally bound in a bottomless pit and the saints are physically raised to reign with Christ upon the earth, and that at the end of the thousand years, Satan will be released from the bottomless pit to gather together the nations for a final war against Christ and His saints, but they will be defeated by fire from heaven, at which time the rest of the wicked will be raised and judged, and Christ will then bring His saints into the new creation and the eternal State. In other words, the premillennial view sees from chapter 19, verses 11 to 21, on through the end of the book as occurring chronologically, one right after the other. So, as I see it, in order to prove to you that the amillennial framework, rather than the premillennial framework, is the right way to go as we study Revelation chapter 20, in order to prove to you that the amillennial framework is the correct framework, I have to prove four main pillars of the amillennial argument. Number one, the thousand year time frame is a symbolic way of describing the present age between the first and the second comings of Christ. I need to prove that. Number two, That Satan is presently bound in the bottomless pit. While at the same time, as Revelation 12.17 says, he is making war upon her offspring on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. In other words, I need to prove to you that Satan is right now bound in the bottomless pit and right now he is making war upon the saints. I need to prove to you that Satan is at present bound in the bottomless pit and is at the same time 
prowling around the earth, seeking whom he may devour. 1 Peter 5, 8. Number three, I need to prove to you that the battle described in chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, is the very same battle that was described for us in chapter 11 and chapter 16 and chapter 19 and a number of other places throughout. That there aren't multiple final battles, but there is one final battle. And number four, I need to prove to you that the first resurrection spoken of in chapter 20, verses 4 to 6, is a spiritual resurrection of which all of the saints during this age partake, and that their present reign then with Christ is a heavenly reign, a spiritual reign, and not an earthly and physical reign. Those are the four pillars of the amillennial argument that I'm going to seek to prove to you. Now, in our previous study two weeks ago, I sought to prove the last of those four pillars. Now, to do so, we looked at John chapter 5, verses 24 to 29, which was written by the very same apostle who wrote the book of Revelation. And in that passage, Jesus spoke of two deaths and two resurrections. The very same two deaths and two resurrections that we find in Revelation chapter 20. Now, we used three words to describe each death and each resurrection as we found them in John chapter 5. The first resurrection is present, spiritual, and particular. It occurs during this age, and it is the resurrection of the spirit or the soul unto eternal life. And it is experienced not by everyone, but by those who hear the word of Christ and believe. The first death we saw is present and physical and universal, referring to the death of the body, which all people, the wicked and the righteous, the sinners and the saints, the unbelievers and the believers experience throughout this age. The second resurrection is future, physical, and universal. It is the bodily resurrection both of the righteous and the wicked at the command of Christ on the last day. An hour is coming when all who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and will come forth. Finally, the second death is future, spiritual, and particular. It is the resurrection of judgment of which Jesus spoke. An hour is coming when all All who are in the tombs will hear the voice of the Son of God and will come forth. Some to a resurrection of life in the new heavens and the new earth. Some to a resurrection of judgment in the lake of fire. My contention to you two weeks ago is that we are meant to understand the two deaths and the two resurrections of Revelation 20 in the very same way as we understand the two deaths and two resurrections in John 5. Working backwards then, we saw that the second death, chapter 20, verse 6, and chapter 20, verse 14, is future, spiritual, and particular. It is the lake of fire, in which those whose names are not found written in the book of life, those who do not have a share in the first resurrection, will be cast in the final judgment. The second resurrection... Chapter 20, verses 12 and 13, is future, 
physical, and universal. All of the dead, John says, all of them, great and small, will be raised to stand before the throne of Christ for judgment. The first death is present, physical, and universal. It is the death of the body during this age, which precipitates the resurrection of the body at the end of the age. Finally, and most importantly to our study of Revelation, the first resurrection is present, spiritual, and particular. It is the resurrection of the Spirit unto eternal life, begun in the new birth. That's when we receive eternal life. And then experienced in its fullness at death, when the believer enters into the presence of Christ in heaven and sits upon the throne with Christ in heaven. The thrones of the saints, in other words, in chapter 20 and verse 4, are located not on the earth, But in the heavenly court, like we saw in chapter 4 and verse 4, I saw a throne, and around it were thrones. Where the saints, dead and glorified, now reign with Christ during the present age. Chapter 20, verses 5 and 6. When you add to this fact the evidence that in the Bible, nowhere, 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 nowhere outside of Revelation 20 do we have any evidence of a two-stage bodily resurrection. First of believers before a so-called millennium, then of unbelievers after a so-called millennium. It's not found anywhere in Scripture. Rather, the resurrection of the body is always, without exception, portrayed as one climactic event at the end of the age. Daniel 12.2, Matthew 13.30, Matthew 25.46, John 11.24, Acts 24.15. We could go on. All of the biblical writers, they don't speak of two resurrections of the body. They speak of the resurrection. You add all of this evidence together, and I think the evidence overwhelmingly points in favor of the amillennial view. You'll have to judge for yourself, but I think the fourth pillar has been sufficiently established. But there are still three pillars of the amillennial argument left to prove, and that will be my aim in this message. I still need to explain how Satan can be both bound in the bottomless pit and at the very same time very much active on the earth. I need to establish that the battle described in chapter 20, verses 7 and 10 is the same described in chapters 11 and 16 and 19 and other places. And finally, I need to establish that the thousand years is a symbolic figure representing the present age. So let's begin with the binding of Satan, which is described in apocalyptic visionary detail in verses 1 to 3. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who is the devil and Satan, and bound him for a thousand years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. All right, I have three points that I want to show you with regard to the binding of Satan. I want to show you the location of his binding. I want to show you the purpose of his binding, and I want to show you the result of his binding. 
first, let's look at the location of his binding. John says in verse 1 that an angel came down from heaven holding the key of the bottomless pit and a great chain in his hand. He sees the dragon, that ancient serpent of old, who is the devil and Satan, bound him with a great chain, cast him into the abyss, and shut it and sealed it over him. Now, 20 chapters in, and one year under our belts to the day, in our study of Revelation, and my first impression of this text is, it just feels symbolic. Satan is not actually a dragon. He is a spiritual being, like the rest of the angels. And being a spirit... He cannot be bound with a physical chain or confined to a physical pit. In other words, we're dealing in the realm of imagery. The key, the pit, the chain. These are symbols representing theological truths. So the question is, what is this bottomless pit meant to convey, to symbolize? What does Satan's confinement there represent? Well, the bottomless pit, Okay, we learned from the Reformation last week that the best interpreter of Scripture is not our tradition or novels, but rather is Scripture itself, right? So what, what does the rest of Scripture, what does the rest of the book of Revelation have to say about this bottomless pit? Well, the bottomless pit appears in four other places in the book of Revelation and two outside of Revelation. We'll just focus in on the book of Revelation this morning. Revelation chapter 9, verses 1 and 2. Go ahead and turn there with me. Revelation 9, verses 1 and 2. The bottomless pit, the Greek word is abyssos, the abyss. It is the realm of demonic existence from which, according to these verses, the demon locusts, right? Locusts representing demonic spirits are released in order to torment those who do not have the seal of God upon their foreheads. Look down at verse 11 of chapter 9. It is said of these demons that come out of the bottomless pit, they have as king over them the angel of the bottomless pit. His name in Hebrew is Abaddon, and in Greek he is called Apollyon. Now we saw in our study of that passage that this is a reference to Satan who evidently, according to Revelation 9, is already in the bottomless pit in the present age. He is king over the demonic forces in the bottomless pit. All right, turn over to Revelation chapter 11. Look at verse 7. You might as well get your fingers nimble. We're going to be all over Revelation today. Revelation 11, 7. John says that at the end of the age, when the prophets, who represent the church, have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them. In other words, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit at the end of the age must already be in the bottomless pit to be released at the end of the age. Now, as I'll show in a moment, I think this describes the same event that we find in Revelation 20, verses 7 to 10. The beast emerges, he is released from the bottomless pit, gathers the nations together, makes war on the saints, conquers them, and kills them. 
until fire falls from heaven and destroys him. The beast that rises from the bottomless pit is already there in the present age. Finally, look at Revelation 17 and verse 8. John speaks of the beast who was and is not and is about to rise from the bottomless pit. Which sounds to me like Satan was loose, is now bound, and is about to be loosed once more. From where? From the bottomless pit. So what do we gather from all of these references? Let's bring them together and let's, let's crystallize what we can learn. Three important points. Number one, the bottomless pit or the abyss is not a geographic locale. But rather it appears to be symbolic of the spiritual realm where the powers of evil exist and operate. It's the opposite, so to speak, of heaven, which is the spiritual realm where God and His angels exist and operate. Number two, we can learn that Satan is presently located there in this age. He's king of the bottomless pit now. He is the angel of the bottomless pit in Revelation 9:11. In other words, his confinement in the bottomless pit is not future, it is something that John sees as present. Third, from the bottomless pit in this age, we learn this from Re- Revelation 9, the demon locust, the demon demon cavalry, Revelation 9, from the bottomless pit in this age comes restrained and restricted demonic activity. Like the demon locusts, which were allowed to torment but not to kill the people of the earth for five months who did not have the seal of God on their foreheads. In other words, being in the bottomless pit does not restrict all demonic activity. Do you get that? So the location. Let's move on to the purpose. Why? Why is Satan bound? This is a very important point that I believe premillennialists almost entirely overlook. The binding of Satan is not total. It is not that he is bound, therefore he can't do anything. Rather, we're told what happens when he is bound, what the purpose of his binding is. He is bound in order that he might be prevented from doing one very specific thing. And you see it there in verse 3. Satan is bound for a thousand years, so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Now, we can also infer why Satan is bound in this way during this age by looking at what happens when he's released at the end of the age. Look at verses 7 and 8. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison. Okay? He was bound so that he would not deceive the nations Then he's released, and what does he do? He comes out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for the battle. This is what Satan is restricted from doing between the two comings of Christ during this present age. He cannot, by the sovereign command of God, by the restraining command of God symbolized in the chain and the pit and the ceiling and the shutting, he cannot so deceive and so control the nations 
so as to incite the entire world together to make war upon the saints as he did in ages past in Babylon, through Assyria, through the Greeks, through the Romans. That doesn't happen in this age. This unified, satanically empowered, global persecution and assault upon the church in every place. That doesn't happen in this age. But it will happen at the end of the age. Satan is still very much active upon the earth in this age, but his power is restricted. It is bound by the sovereign command of God so that something magnificent might take place among the nations during this thousand-year reign. What might that be? So we move to the result of Satan's binding. What why is Satan bound so that he might not deceive the nations? Why does God not want the nations deceived during this age? What happens during this period of satanic restriction? Well, there's a passage in Matthew chapter 12 in which Jesus makes a statement that gives us tremendous insight into this vision of Revelation 20. In Matthew chapter 12, a demon-oppressed man who is both blind and mute was brought to Jesus, and Jesus healed him so that the man both spoke and saw. And this caused the crowds great amazement, and they began to wonder out loud, talking amongst themselves, can this be the son of David? Well, the messianic excitement that was stirred by this miracle enraged the Pharisees who decided to counter the crowd's amazement with a pernicious accusation. They began to spread a rumor among the crowd saying, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man casts out demons. Well, Matthew 12, 25, Jesus responds to the Pharisees' accusation by saying this, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste. No city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan casts out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore they will be your judges. Look at verse 28. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Notice this. If... Then, if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, is that a true premise? Yes. Then the kingdom of God has come upon you. So, the kingdom of God has come upon them. Well, Jesus then explains, he elaborates in the very next verse, verse 29, okay? So, the invasion of the kingdom of God into the kingdom of Satan, according to Jesus, is marked by the power of the Spirit over the powers of darkness. Well, then Jesus makes a profound statement that has astounding implications for our understanding of Revelation 20. Or, so he says, I'm going to explain it in another way, using another metaphor. Or, how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds, note that word, binds the strong man? then indeed he may plunder his house. Alright, so this metaphor of breaking into the strong man's house and plundering his goods 
further explains what happens, verse 28, when the kingdom of God has come upon you. Satan is the strong man who is bound. Same word, Deo. Same word that is used in Revelation 20 and verse 2. Satan is bound by the stronger man. The strong man is bound by the stronger man who is Jesus. The strong man's house is this world, which until the first coming of Christ was the unrestricted dominion of Satan. That's why Jesus referred to him as the ruler of this world. John 12, 31. John 16, 11. Paul called him the God of this world. 2 Corinthians 4, 4. But when Christ appeared, proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom, the demons had to flee from his presence. And when Christ died and was raised, Satan was bound. The stronger man, in other words, has broken into the strong man's house, Satan's house, has bound the strong man, Satan, and is now in this age plundering Satan's goods. Well, what are those? They're people. You and me were the goods of Satan that Jesus is plundering. We were the possessions of Satan. We were followers of the prince of the power of the air, Ephesians 2.2. We were held captive to do Satan's will, uh, 2 Timothy 2.26. But Christ, at his first coming, broke into the strong man's house by his death and resurrection, bound the strong man, and for the last 2,000 years now, he has been plundering people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on earth, from every corner of Satan's house. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. We have been plundered from the house of Satan. Well, the same idea is found in John 12, 31. Just days before Jesus' crucifixion and speaking of His impending death on the cross, Jesus announced this. I mean, it's astounding. Listen. Now is the judgment of this world. Now will the ruler of this world be cast out. Same word as cast down in Revelation 20. And I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. You see the connection? By his death and resurrection, Jesus says, I am judging the world and I am casting out its ruler." To what result? When I am lifted up, I will plunder his house. I will draw all men to myself. Let me run it by you one more time. Jesus has bound the strong man and is plundering his house. He has bound Satan with a great chain and has cast him into the bottomless pit. And now, during this age, with Satan bound, Jesus says things like this. This gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed to the whole world as a testimony to all nations, and then the end will come. Now during this age, Satan is bound, and Jesus says, I will build my church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. Why? Because Satan is bound in the bottomless pit that he might not deceive the nations any longer. 
See, prior to Christ's first coming, just one tiny little nation in ancient Palestine, just one, knew and worshipped the one true and living God, and half-heartedly at that. Just one. The rest of the nations were under Satan's dominion. But God's global designs, even in the Old Testament, were abundantly clear. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the seas. Habakkuk 2.14 Psalm 2.8 The nations are given to you, my son, as an inheritance, and you will rule them with a rod of iron. But in order for that to happen, in order for the glory of the Lord to cover the earth as the waters cover the sea, in order for the nations to be granted to the Son as an inheritance, the ruler of this world had to be bound, cast down into the bottomless pit, and restrained until all the elect of God, all the sheep of Christ, had been gathered from every tribe, tongue, people, and nation through the gospel-proclaiming, disciple-making mission of the church. In this age, Christ is plundering Satan's house through the testimony of his suffering saints who overcome the dragon by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, and because they don't love their lives even when faced with death. But, at the end of the age, when the plundering of Satan's house is complete, the strong man will be unbound one last time. Look at verses 7 and 10 of Revelation 20. And when the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and Magog, to gather them for battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea. And they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them. And the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were. And they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. All right, my aim in this section is to prove the third pillar of amillennialism. Namely, that the war described in this passage is the same as described in chapter 11, chapter 16, and chapter 19. There are not multiple battles between the kingdom of darkness and the kingdom of light as premillennialism demands. There is only one. So turn with me to Revelation 11. I'm going to show you the connections. Keep one finger in Revelation 20 and one in Revelation 11. In Revelation 11, John saw the church in this present age pictured as two witnesses, two prophets, because on the testimony of two or three witnesses, every matter must be confirmed. Two prophets who proclaim the revelation of God for 1260 days, which as we have seen represents the present age, the last days. Throughout this period, the church prophesies with great power, verses 5 and 6, even in the midst of great suffering as the outer court of her temple is trampled by the nations, verse 2. But notice verse 7 of chapter 11. John records that when they have finished their testimony, the beast that rises from the bottomless pit will make war on them and conquer them and kill them and their dead bodies will lie in the street of the great city that symbolically is called Sodom and Egypt where their Lord was crucified. Notice for three and a half days, 
a short period of time compared with the length of the three and a half years that represent the entirety of this age. For three and a half days, as opposed to the three and a half years of the church's testimony, their bodies will lie dead in the street and it will appear to all the peoples of the earth as if the beast has won. The church has been destroyed, her prophets have been silenced, and the beast is king. But after three and a half days of the beast's apparent victory, God will raise his church from the dead in the presence of the nations, receive them into his heavenly presence, and pour out his final judgment upon the earth, which is described in verses 11 to 13. In other words, all of the same elements that are in Revelation 20 are present in Revelation 11. It's just that the symbols have changed. Follow along with me. The church prophesies powerfully, Revelation 11. The church reigns, Revelation 20, during this age. While the beast, Revelation 11, the dragon, Satan, Revelation 20, is bound in the bottomless pit. At the end of the age, the beast, Revelation 11, or Satan, Revelation 20, rises from the bottomless pit to make war upon the saints. The church appears to be defeated and destroyed, Revelation 11. The nations have the church surrounded, Revelation 20. But God vindicates his saints by raising them from the dead and destroying their enemies, Revelation 11. He vindicates his saints with fire from heaven that destroys their enemies, Revelation 20. Do you see that it's describing the same events? Turn with me to Revelation 16, verses 12 to 21. John sees the sixth angel pour out the sixth bowl of wrath, which results in the dragon, the beast, and the false prophet deceiving the nations and assembling them for the battle. Ton Palamon, same phrase that's used in chapter 19 and chapter 20. The battle, not a battle, the battle the one battle on the great day of God the Almighty now again all the same basic elements that are there in Revelation 20 are found in Revelation 16 the forces of evil dragon beast false prophet Revelation 16 Satan Revelation 20 arise at the end of the age and deceive the kings of the earth Revelation 16 deceives the nations Revelation 20 to assemble Revelation 16, to gather Revelation 20, then for the battle, both 16 and 20. But this alliance of nations is destroyed by the wrath of God from heaven in the form of Revelation 16, a great earthquake and great hailstones, in Revelation 20, fire from heaven. Finally, in Revelation chapter 19, turn with me there, John sees the Lord Jesus Christ returning as a warrior dressed for battle. Okay, let's make our comparisons. Revelation 19 and Revelation 20. Place them side by side, which shouldn't be hard because they're side by side in your Bibles. The beast, Revelation 19. Satan, Revelation 20. Has gathered the kings of the earth in their armies, chapter 19. Gathered the nations, chapter 20. To make war, same phrase, against Christ and his army, chapter 19. Against the saints, chapter 20. The false prophet has gathered the whole of the nations for battle by the power of deceptive signs and wonders, chapter 19. Satan has been released from the bottomless pit to deceive the nations, resulting in the gathering of the nations for battle, chapter 20. And the whole passage of chapter 19 
is framed by language that comes straight out of Ezekiel 38 and 39, the Gog and Magog passage. This is probably the strongest evidence that chapter 19 and chapter 20 are describing the same event, the same battle. Look at chapter 19, verses 17 to 18. The angel who is standing in the sun, he calls out with a loud voice to all the birds of the air. He says, come, gather for the great supper of God to eat the flesh of kings, the flesh of captains, the flesh of mighty men, the flesh of horses and their riders, and the flesh of all men, both free and slave, both small and great. That is almost a direct quote from Ezekiel 39. 17 to 20, where the Lord God commands the prophet Ezekiel to call to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field to assemble for the sacrificial feast that God has prepared, comprised of the slain from among the armies of the nations who were raised by this Gog of Magog character. In other words, it is clear that John intends for us to read chapter 19 as a fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. And yet when we get to chapter 20, verses 7 to 10, we find the battle there described also as the fulfillment of Ezekiel 38 and 39. The armies of the nations, deceived and gathered by Satan, whose number is like the sand of the sea, that's a phrase from Ezekiel 38, are explicitly identified as Gog and Magog. Why does John do that? That's weird. Why does he do that? He is linking us to Ezekiel 38 and 39, just like he linked us to Ezekiel 38 and 39 in Revelation 19. He wants us to make the connections. And just as in Ezekiel 38 and 39, this multinational army invades Israel and surrounds the camp of the saints, so does it happen in Revelation 20. Fire falls from heaven to consume them. In fact, I would argue that Ezekiel 38 and 39 is the thread that ties all seven of the final battle images in the book of Revelation together. In Ezekiel 38 and 39, Gog of Magog and his army that are like the sand of the sea are destroyed at various, portion, various places by earthquakes, pestilence, sword, bloodshed, hailstones, fire, and sulfur. Does that sound familiar? Yeah, it sounds to me like Revelation 6, Revelation 9, Revelation 11, Revelation 16, Revelation 17, Revelation 19, and Revelation 20. Seven times in the book of Revelation, the fulfillment of Gog and Magog is displayed. Because these seven battles all describe the same battle. And if this is true then the thousand years of Revelation 20 cannot refer to a period after Christ's second coming in chapter 19 as premillennialism asserts. It must refer to the same battle and the thousand years must refer to the present age between the first and second comings of Christ. So the final pillar of amillennialism, pillar number one, then is the figurative nature of the thousand year time frame as referring to the entirety of the present age. Now, I wanted to deal with this last because I believe that once we establish numbers 2, 3, and 4 from Scripture, number 1 is established on its own as a necessary inference. In other words, once we establish from Scripture that the first resurrection is a spiritual resurrection during the present age, resulting in the believers reigning with Christ in heaven, 
And once we establish that Satan is presently bound and restricted from deceiving the nations, even while he remains very much active on the earth. And once we establish that the final battle described in Revelation 20 is taking place after the thousand years is the same battle that has been described at the end of the age throughout Revelation, then number one pretty much takes care of itself. The symbolic nature of the thousand years makes perfect sense and is, I submit to you, the only reasonable and legitimate way to interpret this passage. That said, though, I want to give you three further reasons for this symbolic understanding of the thousand years. Quickly, number one, there is the symbolic use of numbers throughout Revelation. We've seen it over and over and over again. Seven, ten, twelve, thousand and their multiples, all are employed frequently to denote the idea of fullness or completion. Number two, there's the testimony of the Apostle Peter when he was explaining the length of this present age and the delay in Christ's return. He points to this truth when he says in 2 Peter 3.8, Do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that the, with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years is as one day. Meaning, that time doesn't mean the same thing to the eternal and timeless God that it does to people who exist in time. We should therefore expect in a book filled with heavenly visions to find heavenly time frames that say more to us theologically than they do chronologically. God is perfectly okay using numbers as symbols. He does it all the time. Especially in this book. Third, one major problem that is over, often overlooked by premillennialists I haven't even mentioned yet is the problem of evil in the supposed millennial reign of Christ. I mean, just follow with me. Hang with me. Two more minutes. If all men, all of them, all men, both free and slave, both small and great among the nations, are defeated and destroyed by the sword that comes out of the mouth of Christ, as is described in chapter 19, verses 18 and 21, and therefore only the resurrected and glorified saints enter into the millennial kingdom, then who are these wicked nations that Satan deceives and gathers for battle against the saints? Where did they come from? Well, various solutions have been offered by the premillennialists, but none of them satisfy. Amillennialism doesn't face this problem because it recognizes that chapter 19 and chapter 20 are one and the same battle, parallel accounts of the same final battle of Armageddon, and that the thousand years is symbolic of this present age. Now, it is important to have the right view of the millennium. I, I think it's important. I think what we're doing here today is important. But if the past two weeks that we've spent in Revelation 20 have done nothing more for you than to help you dot your eschatological I's and cross your theological T's and make you feel smarter and better equipped to debate with people, then it's all been for naught. Theology must translate into practice. Because the Word of God is not given merely to stretch and expand our minds, it's given to grip our hearts and cause us to do something. So as we conclude this two-part study of the millennium, what application might we make? And I'm going to suggest to you two. Number one, Satan is presently bound in the bottomless pit, 
and is therefore prevented from deceiving the nations. The strong man is bound, and therefore it's time for us to plunder his house. Amillennialism ought to give you great confidence in the task of evangelism and missions. The satanic darkness and deception that veiled the nations under the old covenant has been thrown back and there are lost sheep for whom the shepherd laid down his life in every tribe, tongue, people, and nation that are just waiting to be found. By whom? By you. The instrument which Christ uses to gather His lost sheep are His found sheep. His church. So remember the next time that your heart begins to fail as you step off the plane on, onto the nation of Haiti or in the nation of Cuba or you prepare to step out of your front door and cross the street to go share the Gospel with an unreached neighbor. You remember this. Satan is bound. And all authority in heaven and on earth belongs to the risen Christ. Cuba belongs to Jesus. Haiti belongs to Jesus. Your neighbor belongs to Jesus. And you have every right to go there or to go there and declare to them the good news of the King. This is the age of global missions. We're in the millennium and the millennium is the age of missions. The age in which the gospel will advance with great power. So let this, for most of you, new view of Revelation 20 and of all of Revelation, let it encourage you and strengthen you to go forth with the authority that Christ has, that He has granted to you by the Holy Spirit. Go get them. Go gather them. It is your right. Secondly, let this remind you, especially verses 4 and 5, that you and, verses 7 to 10, that you will suffer for the sake of Christ. It is necessary and an essential part of your own sanctification and of the growth of the church. It is the plan of your loving Father. Because every suffering endured by faith is worth it. Because all those who resist the beast and remain faithful unto death come to life and reign with Christ for a thousand years. And over them, the second death has no power. This is the age in which the saints are slaughtered. The sheep, they're slaughtered. But the reward, the reward is magnificent. And let this remind you that there is fast approaching a day when Satan will be released from his prison to deceive the nations and gather them for the battle. And it may already be happening. The all-out all global assault upon the church is drawing near and they will surround the camp of the saints and the beloved city. And you can therefore expect in this world ever-increasing hostility and persecution. You will be scorned, ridiculed, and marginalized. You will be denied promotions, you'll be fired, you'll be fined, you'll be imprisoned, you'll be tortured, you'll be killed. The days of so-called Christian America are coming to an end. And the choice between conformity to the beast or allegiance to Christ is becoming ever so clear. 
And the day will come when fire will fall from heaven and the king will return. And the dragon and the beast and the false prophet and all who follow them will be cast into the lake of fire. And so make sure you're on the right side of the battle. And the right side of the battle suffers for the sake of the name in this age. Remember, only those who overcome will receive the crown of life. And how does one overcome, according to Revelation? By the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, because they don't love their own lives even unto the death.